0: Welcome to The Climb! It's a show dedicated to helping singers, songwriters, and indie artists like you create leverage in the music business. We want to put you in a better place. And if you're clever, you'll realize that C-L-I-M-B stands for creating leverage in the music business oh my gosh we're brilliant uh I'll let me introduce you to my co-host brent baxter brent is an award-winning hit songwriter with cuts by alan jackson randy travis lady Annabellum, joe nichols and more and he helps songwriters turn pro by teaching the art the craft and equally as important the business of songwriting and you can find brett at songwritingpro.com songwritingpro.com
1: And I would like to introduce you to my co-host, Johnny Dwinell. Johnny owns Daredevil Production. It's an innovative artist development company. They help you find your sound, and they help you find your audience. Not only do they develop and improve your artistry, they also grow and monetize your fan base, creating cash flow, baby. Because cash is king. (laughs) Daredevil has worked with multi-platinum artists like Colin Ray, Tracy Lawrence, Ty Herndon, and Andy Griggs just to name a few. You can find Johnny at DaredevilProduction.com. That's production, singular, no S. Why? We all know why. Because, ladies and gentlemen, there's only one Johnny Dwinell. They had
0: to break the mold. They just had to. <laughs> all, right. all right. I'm a lot of things. What I'm not is worthy of making another one. Like, it's there you go. There you wrong. go. <laughs> I, uh, I'm self-deprecating.
1: There you go. Uh, how you doing, brother? Man, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm excited that I get to kind of coast on this one because it's a Johnny episode. And if you all listen uh, week in, week out, which we hope you do and we thank you if you do, then you know that Johnny and I take turns. We switch out one week I lead, one week he leads. And this is a Johnny episode focusing more on music marketing and music business, that kind of stuff, whereas I usually handle more of the songwriting, the songwriting business part of it. So.
0: Right on. And we, by the way, thank you to everybody that listens. We are quickly approaching 15,000 downloads. And um, if you like what you hear on this, please share it. It's important that you mm-hmm. spread the wealth, spread the knowledge. We try to keep it as entertaining as possible and, and, and pack as much information as we can into 20 or 30 minutes That uh, that is, is going to be valuable to you. Leave a comment or a rating and review on iTunes as well uh, so that other people... They're, they're not going to care about what we say as much as they're going to think and, and care about what you say. That's so, right. Let us know there. So today, let's just get right into it. we got a lot of ground to cover. I okay? know. Uh, we're going to tackle, really, uh, listen, I'm gonna, we're going to go down 10 music marketing facts. We're going to talk about 10 different huge artists that you only know because they're famous and we all sort of covet The survivors, we covet the people who make it and Mm -hmm. we we fantasize about them and we tell ourselves stories about how they got there and and how easy it was. But I want to shed some light on some really masterful superstars that did not get where they got easily And, and sort of pull the curtain back so you can see what really went on. And the survivorship bias, there's a great uh, article on this by the way I'm going to try to cover this as quick as I can but there's a dude back in the 40s who made who was a brilliant mathematician who with a super high IQ and he worked for the government in think tanks and he was the guy that could tell exactly how to aim your torpedoes in World War II if the ship was turning right because they could tell how mm-hmm. fast the ship was going by the waves and mm-hmm. do the math on that but if a ship was turning and they needed to know where to aim that torpedo to make sure they could hit that German ship in World War II he, he's the one that figured out how to do it. And they had a problem with the bombers of the B-29 super fortresses and they, because you had about a 50% mortality rate, 50%, percent five yeah, zero if good. you flew those things because they were flying tanks, essentially, easy to shoot down out of the sky, and they were trying to figure out what to do. Well, all the generals would talk to him and say, hey, you know, these, sh- these, these planes are coming back and they've got holes here, 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 and here. So that's where we're fortifying the plane. <laughs> And he's like, well, you're doing it wrong. And they're like, what are you talking right. about? He's like, you're looking at the survivors. If that plane has holes here, 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 and there, you don't need to fortify that. They can
1: survive. They can survive. They made it back. We need
0: to find out about the planes that went down, like what happened behind the curtains. Because that you couldn't just fortify the whole plane. Because it wouldn't be too off. heavy be and, too heavy, yeah, yeah. and and uh, so there was all kinds of aeronautic sort of engineering involved, but that was the deal, like what happened to the planes that didn't make it back, so we're always looking at the famous people you if you want to open up a restaurant, you always look at the restaurants in town, you're like, man, it sounds so romantic, I want to get my own restaurant, I'm dead it up, but maybe you don't realize that ninety percent of the restaurants in your area fail that's right, and, and so really, what makes the one work. And that's why I want to explain to you these 10 facts from, from, from big-time artists on and their marketing facts so that you know what's going on. Uh, and All So right. consider them. It, it, this is what these, these artists had to do to go through to make it, okay? So number one, uh, Guns and Roses' Appetite for Destruction. Classic. Okay? Classic. What a great record. Mm-hmm. It came out in 1987. Uh, October of 1987. They... Uh, it was on Geffen Records, and Tom Zutout was the A&R guy. And the record did not, quote-unquote, break until a full year after it came out. They wow. were about to be dropped from the label. They could not get the band on the air. None of the radio promo that they did worked. Mm-hmm. It just nobody got it. And Tom Zutout was bought in he really believed in the band and uh he he thought that um the marketing machine wasn't getting the traction they wanted partly because mtv refused to play the first single so uh, this is at the end of the rope where they're and you talk to to some of the guys like my friends in Winger, uh, you know Nikki Six, stuff like that. He'll he'll they knew Guns N' Roses. They were all hanging mm-hmm. out, and they're like, you know, how's it going, man? Did you lose your deal yet? No, not yet. You know, like not we're yet. still <laughs> hanging in there. Like <laughs> that's that's where this was at. And so Tom Zutat went into David Geffen, who's a super mega mogul, and said, man, mm-hmm. um, you know, do me a favor, like pull. I need a big favor. Pull. And throw some weight around and get them spun on MTV. And so that's what Mm -hmm. happened. They spun Welcome to the Jungle at three o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning, which is late Saturday night. The phones lit up. And um, and finally, they then they became a staple. And that's the way that happened. But they almost lost their deal before that happened.
1: Wow. Good thing their fans were up at 3 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Yeah, yeah. Their fans are up at 3 a.m. Doing exactly morning. what
0: they were doing smoking crack and, you know, yeah. and yeah. Facing it on a TV. Number two, Van Halen. Um, Van Halen recorded a, a demo that was passed on by every single record label twice. Gene Simmons got into this band, really liked Eddie, really mm-hmm. liked what they were doing. And so not only did they have a demo, that was passed by Verlecker Label twice, but Gene Simmons produced that demo, and at the time, in 1976, um, that was... I mean, Gene Simmons was... He was a rock huge. god. He was huge. <laughs> huge. Yeah, huge. Right. And uh so he produced and shot the demo and and, and and by the way, everybody in his camp including his manager um was like these guys are never going to make it. This is the worst thing you could ever do. This is by <laughs> the way straight from Gene Simmons' mouth, okay, on an interview that I read. And um and uh and so he they didn't do it. And and you know what happened? You, you, Gene thought, okay, he just gave the record and all the deal that he had, gave it back to them. He tried to convince Mo Austin and Ted Templeman, who was the VP of A&R at that time, of, and also a producer at uh, Warner Brothers, uh, that the, you know, he should, they should sign him. They didn't want to see him. They didn't care. Uh, I think Ted Templeman liked, from the mouth of Ted Templeman, he liked Eddie. He, he knew mm-hmm. that Eddie was a genius, didn't like David Lee Roth. Do you know who he wanted to put in the band as a singer initially? We talked who about could it before. be? Sammy Hagar. I know he wanted Sammy go. Hagar in the band, which, which ended up happening like ten years later, but right. uh, and sort of and sort of organically without the 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 interference of a record label. But um, uh-huh. that's what he that's who he wanted in the band, and. Um, But they stood together shoulder to shoulder and said, no, this is what we're going to do. And actually, Ted Templeman and Mo Austin went out to the Troubadour in L.A. to see Dokken play. Van Halen was opening up for Dokken. And uh, lo and behold, they saw him live and then they got it. They're like, oh, yeah, let's sign him. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's how they got their deal. And of course, that first record is uh, arguably amongst every single rock artist's top 10 records ever because it changed Mm -hmm. the world, you know, with Eruption and all that. Uh, so speaking of
1: So what we're seeing here is that the survivors, even the survivors are almost not survivors.
0: They went through a ton of guess what? No's. No's right. Nope. 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 And they kept pushing, they kept pushing, they kept pushing, you know. So uh, you got you've gotta stay in the game. You've gotta stay in Mm-mm. the game. Even when everybody, even when the same person tells you no twice. It's and, mm-hmm. and just no for now, <laughs> right? That's for right now. We'll come back around. You wait right here. So exactly. Um, Speaking of Gene Simmons, number three, KISS. I'm trying to rifle through these as best as we can. So
1: uh, I- I'm appreciating
0: your discipline. Thank Normally you, Normally
1: <laughs> a, a 10 on a list means it's a two-parter. We'll see what happens. I'm, gonna, I'm
0: not trying to do it. Uh, so they were signed to Neil Bogart's Casablanca Records in 1973 and released their first effort, which was called KISS, in 1974. That record failed to gain traction in the marketplace. They quickly came off the, ro- the road to record Hotter Than Hell, which was mm-hmm. also released in 1974. Like The first record was such a dud. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just like, let's just release another one. So they came back, let's recorded, remember, yeah. The second one, nine, hotter than hell. That record failed to sell well. Then Kiss they pulled them off the road again to record the third release, which was dressed to kill, which contained rock and roll all night, mm-hmm. and and fared a bit better than hotter than hell, but still the third effort did not sell well. Same year, okay, and at this point, Kiss and Neil Bogart's faith in the band and Casablanca Records they were almost bankrupt. But they had done such a good job with their live show and the makeup and everything like that, that they were Mm -hmm. touring and be able to make money touring. Uh, They weren't selling records, but they were making money touring. So they had this Mm -hmm. other cash register that kind of kept them out on the road. And um, so they said, well, because they're touring and the live show's so good, let's um, why not do a quote unquote, you know, live record, which if you know from the stories of Kiss Alive. <laughs> the only hmm. thing that was live on the record was the audience. <laughs> <laughs> Everything was re-recorded. But, um, but they, uh, they released a live and uh, you know, they, to try to get that live show on tape, and it did exactly that. And not only saved the band, but it saved Casablanca Records and you know, hard work, perseverance, and grit. And by the way, they weren't just faced with record sales. They, they found another way to make the money mm-hmm. and to keep themselves alive. They don't see what I did there, there and, and, and come back around again. So, um, you know, big, I mean, they almost, almost didn't make it, man. Okay. Right. Kiss almost didn't become kiss like the iconic group that they were. And if yeah. I'm not mistaken, by the way, I think that Neil Bogart, this might be wrong, but I think that Neil Bogart picked up the first record kiss. He mm-hmm. bought that, I think from Epic records who signed them, recorded the record, had it pr- printed, on pallets, ready to be shipped, shrink wrapped, ready to go on trucks and be shipped mm-hmm. all the record deals. And then one of the label heads was like, "What the hell are we doing? Like, this is like <laughs> the dumbest thing we could ever do." These guys are dressed up like you know Japanese kabuki makeup. Right. Like, what the heck? get out of this right now? Cut our losses. And I think he picked up that first record for a song, but you know, begun and then created the, the band, begun to believe in the band, and, and and the rest of it happened there. I believe that's true. <laughs> um, so number four, George Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, so, George Michael was a huge multi platinum international star with the 80s duo Wham! Wham! Wow. Before he became George Michael, he was George Michael of Wham! And uh, they sold 25 million records. Now, I don't care who you are, 25 million records put you, I think, that's... when you cross over 20 million records, you go into big time star status. Oh, heck yeah! Superstar status, yeah. where you're world renowned. So, mm-hmm. here you have somebody that's famous already. Mm-hmm. Okay? And we're all lamenting as independent artists, which is nobody wants to listen to us. And if they just heard my music and if I just got in front of the right person, my life would be great. He was already famous. He's like, I'm George Michael. I sold 25 million records. That's right. Correct. And uh, and so he gets his first solo record, which uh, which is Faith. He gets the deal and he gets mm-hmm. the deal with CBS Records and Walter Yetnikoff. And, and this is uh, Walter Yetnikoff was the last Sort of uh, a record label executive who really believed in the bands, like and believed in the art, loved mm-hmm. the artists. He 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 was he was in awe of his artists. Okay, it wasn't all business for yeah. him; it was art for him too. And George Michael had what they called a key man clause in his contract. So mm. if anything happened to Walt or getting a cough, his contract became null and void. Right, and he was yeah, he could walk. He could walk, and uh, because he didn't trust anybody else to do it, so uh, he cuts he he comes out with faith, which is you know you know the all the songs you the know father record. figure yeah, all that huge, huge record that sold twenty five million copies. So now George Michael's <laughs> fifty million copies, okay, and then his second solo record, Listen Without Prejudice, Volume One. While he was recording that, which is by the way, if you've ever heard that record, an an epic masterpiece. I mean, it really is the sort of crowning. It, it's the it, it's the the apex of his creative genius. like It was a really mm-hmm. good record. And uh, CBS Records was purchased by Sony. Mm-hmm. And as a result, Walter Yetnikoff was out. And uh, who was in? It was Tommy Mottola, who was former manager mm-hmm. for Hall and & Oates. And mm-hmm. Tommy Mottola, now he, <clears throat> first of all, a New York Italian, so you got that going for you. You know, he's not, he doesn't <laughs> words, right? He's all right. business, and he wants to make the Japanese happy. OK, mm-hmm. and so he's trying to get his artists to work for him. George Michael was one of them. And George Michael's like, screw you. I, you know, I'm, my contract's null and void. And so here you have a situation where a label, and at that time, this is the heyday of the music industry, only the top 10% of the artists are making any money. So mm-hmm. CBS Records probably had 500 artists. There's only 50 of them that made any money. Wow. of them lost money.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: they're saying, and, and Tommy Tuller goes head to head ego head-to-head with George Michael and sits on yeah. the record. I remember coming across that record in a record store by accident huh? and thinking, how did I not hear about this?
2: And right, you know why yeah. you didn't
0: hear about it? Because they didn't market it. And that record sold something like 4 million copies. Hmm. Guys, they didn't market it. Like it, He was famous
2: and they huge. didn't yeah.
0: market it and it made a huge impact on the sales because Tommy just thought, I've got Five hundred artists, you got one career. I'm gonna sit right. on this. I'm gonna screw you. And then that's why if you watch those videos with freedom, um, mm-hmm. where he's got his jacket from the faith on, video catching yeah, on, on fire, fire and, and the song yeah. is about. What's happening between him and Tommy Matola, you know, Mm -hmm. for the boys on MTV? And Tommy wanted him to be in the videos and shake his little booty, and he wouldn't do it. So he's like, You want beautiful people in the videos? I'll give you beautiful people in the videos. And Freedom was (laughs) like six of the top supermodels at the time. (laughs) Right, yeah. And that was just his big middle finger to Tommy Matola going, Isn't this what you want to sell the music, man? You know, it was a classic head to head. But guys, marketing was the key there. Um, So uh, number five, Winger. Um, Paul Taylor is, is is a dear friend of mine, and Paul met Kip Winger when they toured together with Alice Cooper's band. And um, I remember Paul saying he, he he came out of a recording session one time, and, and Kip was there, and, and he was just playing some demos that, that Kip had made. And he was like, "Man, those are cool songs." He's like, "Oh, thanks." And he's like, "You wrote those songs?" And Kip was like, "Yeah." He goes, "Who's that singing?" Kip's like, "That's me." You want to write some songs? And Paul's like uh yeah yeah <laughs> like let 's do this, and so there it was, so you 've got two guys that are well inside the industry at this point they 're famous mm-hmm. touring with alice cooper and uh and they had the, and this by the way, this band sold a lot of records, okay, and mm-hmm. um they had the, the these demos done, and nobody would sign them. nobody mm-hmm. nobody cared until Bo Hill, a famous producer, said. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, you guys want to do a record? He, he, he told. Uh, he, I think it was Atlantic Records they were on. He told Atlantic Records, "Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll produce him, and then Atlantic signed him. Hmm. That's simple." <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't. It had nothing to do with the damn quality of the music.
2: Yeah. It was a- Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Relationship.
1: Somebody that knows, likes, and trusts them.
0: That's right. Number yeah. six, Bruce Springsteen. Okay, this is one of my favorite stories. Bruce. Bruce is iconic, right? And, and huge. he recorded yeah. Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey, which was his first major label release for Columbia Records in 1973. It took him six months to hand in that record. He handed in the Masters, and Clive Davis told him that he didn't hear any singles on that. And if you've listened to that record, Clive Davis was right, okay? <laughs> There's nothing that was like going to work on the radio, and so he's like, I mm-hmm. can't promote it. you got to give me some songs that, that, to help me promote it. And he told, uh, he told Bruce, he said, look, go back and write me two singles. And so Bruce went back under pressure with his record mm-hmm. deal on the line,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? And wrote, what did he write? Blinded by the Light. <laughs> and oh, right. in the night, um, and uh, both of which were released as singles and didn't do that well for him. So he was critically acclaimed on that first record, but it didn't sell very many records. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until 1977 when, and I think by that time he had released his second release, which was the East Street Shuffle or whatever that is—the Good, the Bad, and the East Street Shuffle—which um, he was just starting to get it together. Then this is—we're still not—we're still not up to. Um, Born to Run, you know, which is yeah, his not full Bruce at this time. We're not point. full Bruce yet. He's still developing <laughs> right. as an artist, right? But yeah. uh it helped because Man for Man released Blinded by the Light and did of mm-hmm. and, and made it commercial. Like he, yeah. he he played with it and and sort of turned into this and it became a huge number one hit, which mm-hmm. thanks to Man for Man, Bruce got to keep his deal, which probably I'm sure didn't hurt him opening up the Purse Springs for Born to Run. Right. And, yeah. and he had enough time to develop and become a student of the game, and then and was really writing just undeniable songs at that point, you know? Yeah. So, um, number seven. This is just kind of, I want to bring this up because it's a marketing situation, but Sony bought Columbia Pictures and CBS Records. Why did Sony, a, a maker of electronics, buy that stuff? Sony got screwed on the Betamax tape. So mm-hmm. if you're really young, you probably don't even know what the hell this is. But you know, when it right. first came out with videotapes, Sony was the one that first came out with it. And it, they developed it, and they spent a billion dollars developing Betamax. Wow. And, and the competitor was um, Philips. And Philips was owned by Seagram, which was a huge multi—Seagram's also owned Polygram Records. They owned mm-hmm. a, a movie studio. They had all these different sort of entities under this, this multi-billion dollar conglomerate umbrella. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so the competitor to the Betamax was a VHS tape. Mm -hmm. Well, in the 22 immunable Laws of Marketing, which is a book that I've read, number one, law leadership is better to be first in the market than to be better. And and so uh, Sony just created really, really good electronic products and innovated. And Mm -hmm. uh, Philips did that, too. But Philips, all of a sudden, for the first time ever, I mean when the when these tapes machines first came out you before that you never owned a video yeah you never owned yeah. a movie you, you you didn't know you had to wait for TV to run it and then right. you would watch and listen to the commercials and you were forced to sit there appointment television mm-hmm. and watch it and then when the videos came out it was really awesome because then you could tape them right you could tape them oh, yes. and edit out right. the commercials yeah. and and or fast forward to the commercials and that was like a really really big deal but mm-hmm. then all of a sudden for the first time ever because The Under the Seagram's conglomerate umbrella, Phillips had access to titles, movie titles. Mm -hmm. And so they just flooded the market with. for the first time ever. You could actually own the movie without commercial interruption. It wasn't edited for TV with all Mm -hmm. the swear words, the cuss words and everything. You could own it. And so everybody went and bought VHS machines because they could get VHS movies. Sony couldn't do it. And that's why Sony bought a movie studio and a record label to make sure that they had access to all the art and could control all the art that was coming out for whatever new thing mm-hmm. that they invented. So, you know, it's important to know that, <clears throat> that um, uh, you know, why these things kind of happen. It's a marketing thing, right? It's about mm-hmm. who gets it first, you know, who's first in the marketplace. That's why we spend a lot of time at Daredevil trying to help you find a lane, you know, because yeah. if somebody's, if you're, you know, if you're trying to be Jason Aldean and there's 500 guys trying to be Jason Aldean, that lane's pretty crowded. There's a lot of traffic in there.
1: Exactly, yeah. You know, but, and we already got Jason Aldean while we need you. Exactly, exactly.
0: So, number eight, uh, Aerosmith's mm-hmm. deal in 1991 with Columbia. They signed a $30 million record deal with an $8 million signing bonus. Okay. Nice. Well, the band was still signed to Geffen Records, who resurrected them from the dead and still owed them three releases. Hmm. Now, Colum- okay. Aerosmith was originally signed to Columbia, so Dream On and Back in the Saddle, again, all those old classic hits from Aerosmith. Mm-hmm were Columbia releases, and then okay. the new ones, which was Permanent Vacation and Pump, and um, you know those subsequent releases were on Geffen Records. Mm-hmm. And uh, why the hell? I remember asking a buddy of mine who was deep in the industry, why would why would Columbia Records give Aerosmith thirty million bucks and eight million dollars when they still owe three releases to Geffen? And those guys were crazy. Like who knows? They're, they might not be alive tomorrow. Why are they spending right. that much money? How does this make sense? It was the catalog. It was the catalog. Sony owned the catalog. And if they didn't sign them back Mm -hmm. to a deal, the catalog was going to revert back to the band. Ah. And so they need to pay to keep that. And the catalog, I mean, I have a a dear friend who worked in licensing at Sony directly. And so I know for a fact that like, when Just Push Play came out, Mm -hmm. um, Aerosmith uh, had a commercial for a year that was running with Dodge with Just Push Play. Not a vintage song. Not sweet right. emotion, not back in the saddle again. A brand right. new song and and the band got 1.8 million bucks for that song. And and each of them got a car from Dodge, whatever car they wanted, a brand new car. <laughs> nice. So that's the that's what that was worth, right? And then who knows what Nissan paid for Dream On because mm-hmm. they had uh, something going on with the Nissan Six there. So that's why they did it because they wanted to keep that machine going because the catalog was worth money and kept it going. They didn't yeah. care whether the band lived or died. They were just yeah. like, we can work this this project here. So. That brings us to uh, number nine. We're going to make this 10, dude. This yeah. is crazy. Def Leppard's Hysteria. So mm-hmm. Def Leppard got their deal released on through the night, and then on their second release, which is High and Dry, they got Lang to produce it. And that great mm-hmm. record, by the way. And and that sold about two hundred fifty thousand copies on the strength of bringing on the Heartbreak, which became like a pretty big uh, radio hit. And also, mm-hmm. uh, right, that was right when. Uh, MTV came out. So early on, they were darlings of MTV. Bringing on the Heartbreak was a big regular rotation video Mm -hmm. on MTV. Um, So then they go into the studio, record Pyromania, which was a history-making and a history-changing record. Like The production on that was so slick and so cool. I'd never been heard before. People yeah. freaked out, you know? Muttling, baby. Muttling. What a great record that was, too. I saw that tour, man. Not for nothing. That was sick. <laughs> that was sick, <laughs> at Alpine Valley. Like, oh, my God. And, um, and listen, they made enough money to satisfy the debt to the label for all three records, and they made a really nice profit because that record sold some ungodly amount of copies. The band oh, sure, yeah. made a lot of money on Pyromania. And uh, they were wanting to move away because f- Mutt Lang is, is a taskmaster. He's very, mm-hmm. um, he, 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 I mean, he'll have you do something over and 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 over again. He squeezes the soul kind of right out of it, they say. Right, yeah. But that's how he makes the pop records that he makes, you know, and mm-hmm. they didn't want to do that anymore. So they hired Jim Steinman, actually, to produce Hysteria. Jim Steinman co-wrote and produced Bad Out of Hell with Meatloaf. Meatloaf. Yeah. And if you listen to that record, it's a much more sort of, man, let's just get some guys in a room. Let's, let's play some music. We'll get some good performances. Mm-hmm. We'll work them up and then we'll release the record. It's yeah. Not the way Def Leppard was produced. <laughs> and at one point, um, Mutt Lang, because b- by the way, also Mutt Lang, not only did they want to get away from him, but he wasn't available for like a year or something like that. Like he yeah. was booked out a year and, and they were. Cause know, he's like doing ACDC
1: and yeah. who knows who else. Right? Exactly. Exactly.
0: So, um, they were, uh, you know, they were saying, "Here we, you know, we got to, we, we got to get the record out now." And uh, Steinman starts recording. The band Mutlang happens to walk in the studio and hear, heard what he was doing with the drums, which mm-hmm. wasn't the samples that they were using on the records with those big, you know, the big drum sounds. Yeah. And just was like, "What the hell are you doing? You're going to ruin this band's career." And so he mm-hmm. basically convinced the band to fire Steinman. <laughs> which they did, and he, he had a $2 million price tag, which they paid. Wow. Okay, and then they had to pay Mutt. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so they paid two producers to make one record, both top producers at the time. And by the time they released that record, um, they had to sell 5 million records just to break even. Wow. Okay, and in between that, by the way, Drummer uh, gets in a car crash with the Corvette, loses his arm. Not a good thing for a drummer. Not a good thing for a drummer. They're like wondering what the hell they're gonna do, but they stood behind him and mm-hmm. that kid that kid, he went in and, and and learned how to frickin' play drums with three hands and samples three hands i'm sorry with three limbs <laughs> three <laughs> limbs two legs and one and one hand okay we're going wow. the other way so you talk about grit i mean all this stuff happened think about what happened and and they were selling really good on the first single and the second single but it wasn't until pour some sugar on me came out which by the way last song handed in in the 11th hour on the record by mutt lang okay yeah. and um i almost didn't make the record and so here's the deal if you think when you get your deal, if you think when you're famous, if you think when you've sold 20 million records that you can kick your feet up, stretch mm-hmm. out, coast. Psh, light up a big old cigar and coast, you're wrong. The right. dice are always tumbling. So um, keep that in mind. And finally, number 10 is Michael Jackson. Um, Yeah, I've heard of this guy. He's uh, yeah, he he just I mean he dances uh, real good. I heard he sings real good. Writes some songs, you know. Music kid singer, right? Kid singer. I think how many records does he sold? By the way, like all of them. uh, Yeah, all of them. Every single one of them. I mean, I think it's well over like 150 or 200 million records worldwide. Worldwide. Yeah, probably. It's insane, right? So Michael Jackson was world famous uh, as the front person for the Jackson Five. Mm-hmm. and here's the storyline epic didn't want to sign him when it was time for well the dude was comp- you know, why thing.
1: would you he's just uh
0: Michael Jackson. Michael, I mean, this guy's so freaking talented, right? Like, I mean, right. he's so talented that the engineer created a box for him to stand on because he dances while he sings in the studio, cutting vocals, and it's on time. So they recorded <laughs> it and mixed that crap in all those songs on, 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 on all the Michael Jackson records. I mean, that's how <laughs> on the money that this guy is. He's a freaking nature. He was so good. Mm-hmm. Then, marketing, VP of marketing, Epic, pff, didn't want to sign him because they thought he was a novelty. They thought well, he was.
1: Okay, so Freak Talented already sold a bunch of records with the Jackson 5. Yep. Hours, 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 and hours of stage time. So he's, I mean, he's already
0: way more experienced than someone his age usually is. Exactly. And they're saying no, thank you. And they're saying no. They're saying we don't want to do it. And I can't remember what happened for him to get the deal, but um, I mean, obviously the rest is history. But they thought that was going to be a bomb. And mm-hmm. Michael Jackson. Already famous worldwide. They had a cartoon out about him. I mean, like, it, yeah. I mean, how much more famous can you freaking get, right? All that <laughs> right. stuff going on. And he still had to fight. He still had to sing for his supper to mm-hmm. get that deal, people. Okay. This isn't easy. This isn't, this isn't about being, you know, fame is not easy street. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for fame, don't do it. You know, get into right. this game because you want to be here because you want to make good music and you're going to have to fight every single step of the way to make it happen. So, man, I hope those, you know, shed a little bit of light on that. You know, I'm I'm totally depressed now. Thank you. <laughs> well, don't be depressed. I mean, just know that it, it's it, you still got to work. You got to know what yourself. you're signing
1: up for. Know what you're signing up for. Right.
0: If Michael Jackson had social media back then, mm-hmm. he at the age that he was at. I mean, he wouldn't. Oh, yeah. He wouldn't have needed a damn record label. Right. <laughs> he would have told the marketing guy to go stick it up his kazoo, and I'll take this my damn self and put it out and watch me sell right. you know ten million records on my own.
1: Because, right. Yeah. So
0: now you know it's a lot easier now than it was before. But that's that's uh, that's all I got on that right there.
1: That that is a ton. I can't believe it. we got through a ten parter in one part.
0: It's amazing. I'm that's proud of we are like forty five minutes now. No, we're actually we're uh, we're doing good. We're at thirty one.
1: Whoa, so wow. wrap it up so. quick,
0: and I'll still be shorter than your the last one. All, all right, all
1: right, but that's because so, I talk Johnny, all the time. before we <laughs> go, <laughs> Johnny, before we go, you have something you want to share with the audience other than all this drama you've already shared with us?
0: I do. Okay, so number one, the Twitter book. You know, listen, you're gonna have to get good at social media. The best way to get good at social media is to start with one. Master mm-hmm. one. Spend the next three months mastering one social media platform, and the rest of them will come very, very easily after that. Uh, but this is the one you got to do. And so it's Twitter. Start with Twitter. I got a free book. It's a best-selling book on Amazon. I give it away for free at giftfromjohnny.com, J-O-H-N-N-Y, giftfromjohnny.com. And uh, it's a tour of the, the, the app. It'll tell you exactly how to work that platform, what every button is. I need to update it a little bit, which I'm going to do shortly, but um, you can figure it out, the, the, the changes, and it'll show you how to get a thousand targeted followers in every single month in just 15 minutes a day. So we show you the tools that we use and the strategies that we use so that you're not wasting a lot of time. We try to get you a jump start on that. And cool. the second thing is um, consulting. You know, if you're stuck a little bit and and you're you're looking to take the next step and and you feel like your, um, you're, your wheels are spinning. Sometimes, I always like to innovate my way out of that by learning something. I I got a ton of books sitting on my desk that I have yet to read. A ton of books, mm-hmm. a stack of books that I already have read, and that gets my juices flowing. And it, sometimes that's even more potent when it's somebody going to take the time to. To look at your exact situation, this is yeah. not something that's free. We we do charge for it, but uh, it's 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 not too expensive at all. And really, it, you'd be amazed at what we can do in one hour. But we'll look at every one of your social media platforms, your website. You probably don't have a web store, but if you do, I'll look at that too and let you know. Here's what you got to do to kind of move ahead and start and start looking at the industry the way you need to look at the industry instead of chasing the idea that you're going to go make a demo and some major label is going to sign you based on your talent and develop you. Cause that's just not the way it's going to happen.
1: Right. There's a lot more to it than that. So, Thank you, Johnny. Thank well, you. Appreciate for the
0: information, it. You got it, guys. Listen, we do this because we want you to win. If you like what you heard, please share it. Uh, leave a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, hit us up if you want us to if there's something you want us to cover, hit me up at info mm-hmm. at daredevilproduction.com. Again, production is singular. There's no S. You, you never know, you might just your idea might just become an episode of a podcast. Okay. There you go. So let's see you do it. We'll keep on climbing. And we'll see you at the top.